I, I just want you to know, I've, I've told uh, you before, and I've said, Becky and I've shared this before, that the great uh, joy that we have of being a part of this class, uh, to get to know some of you even more. We know a lot of you, but to get to know you more and, and to kind of do life together, that's, uh, that's been a joy that I cannot tell you uh, how it's contributed to our life and how blessed we feel. So thank you so much. Hey, we're going to uh, start working now. Uh, here we go. We're going to unpack something, uh, Beth. <clears throat> Uh, the conversations with Jesus. We're going to be in John chapter 4 today, and uh, I'm going to try to get through uh, this one. Uh, this is a, 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 a long conversation, if you will, and uh, I think that what the way uh, that I would, would say this, this topic that we'll be working on is what I'm calling the real love of God in Jesus. The real love of God in Jesus. Now, you know, uh, whenever we think about the real love of God, we want to talk about how it's expressed. And I'll just refer you back to last week. To uh, Dara, we did the record, or we, was oh, okay. I was I was supposed to remind you <clears throat> uh, that uh, the the that Jesus had said to Nicodemus that God loved the world. Remember in John three, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And in chapter 4, I want to suggest to you that this becomes one of the ways that Jesus shows this love is real. This kind of love is not just something to talk about, not just beautiful cards and artistry and all those kind of things, but it's the kind of love that gets down into the depths of life. It's the kind of love that gets down into the realities. And if you know anything about John chapter 4, you know something about this person that Jesus begins to have this conversation with. It makes me think that, you know, there's always this disconnect at times uh, in what we say and what we affirm and what we're actually able to, uh, uh, you know, to be able to pull off. Uh, Last week was Mother's Day. Great day. You know, Becky and I have never been able to have children. Uh, God was merciful on her tonight to raise two children. And, uh, you know, we, we wanted kids. We did, but, but I'm always amazed. I mean, you know, when you, when you go to church on Sunday, on Mother's Day, there's all this sweetness about children. And those are the kids that you almost strangled coming to church the week before, right? Right? If you don't get quiet, you know, those kind of things. And, and so there's always some kind of disconnect. Sometimes, sometimes it seems so flowery and, and so wonderful. And, and, and these are the kids that you think, man, I brought you in this world. I know I can take you out. And, uh, you know, so th- th- there's a disconnect. This week we had two and a half days of strategic planning at the university. The president brought in some training stuff on, on, uh, uh, on uh, uh, strategic planning. And it was funny because the name of it is The Four Disciplines of Execution. I'll just leave that. The guy that teaches systematic theology in my department was an attorney for about 20 years and was a death penalty specialist. I looked over and I said, Wendell, do you feel like we're just about to get executed? You know, because what the, the topic was and the teaching was this, that in companies and organizations there is a great deal of strategic planning that occurs on computers and people make up charts and like that. But the real failure in strategic planning is the execution of the plan. And that's why these, this book has been written. The president <clears throat> took us through this process of strategic planning to not just, I mean, I've got all kinds of plans on my computer, my strategic plan notebook, and I think I accomplished one, you know, uh, because it's that difference between what we affirm and say what we say is important, and what we can actually do. I want to suggest to you that John here is taking this notion that the love of God that he's referred to in chapter 3 is not just an idea. It's not just a concept. 
It's not just something we'd refer to, but God can't pull off. In fact, chapter 4 becomes, in my judgment, this actual understanding of the real love of God in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to start reading in chapter 4 of John. <clears throat> you follow along with me if you choose to, or you can just listen. Then when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from the journey, was setting, setting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. So I'm you'll see that it's about noon. It's hot. It's middle of the day. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you being a Jew ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank it for himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said correctly, I have no husband, for you have five husbands. And the one you are now have is not your husband. This you have truly said. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now, there, I've got to be a little bit of a smile here, right? You know? <clears throat> I just told you how you've been living and who you are. Instead of talking about that some more, hey, you must be a prophet. <laughs> Although I'll talk to you later. If they'd have gone into town, he could have found the same thing out. <clears throat> Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, she's referring to the Jews here, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming that neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit of the truth. Then the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now, this is a rather long passage, and I think sometimes it's just a valuable thing to read all the Scripture and for us to hear it. 
And I want to just suggest a couple of things about this love of God that transcends words, that isn't just a statement that John makes that God loves the world, but finds itself in the realities of daily living. And so I want to begin with this idea about the real love of God in Christ and Jesus is this. Number one, the setting of God's love. The setting of God's love. Now, there's several things here that I think are significant as we read into the the passage here. Uh, The setting here of God's love, again, is not in a church. It's not in some, if you will, religious environment. It's actually in a place that no observant Orthodox Jew would find themselves. And that is Samaria. Samaria. I want to talk to you just a little bit about this, about Samaria. Jesus had gone to this place when I tried to, was using PowerPoint this, but Samaria is a district you have in the south where Jerusalem is, Judea, and where the Sea of Galilee to the north, you have Galilee. In the middle of that section there is the district of Samaria. When we were in Israel a few years ago, I saw that word several times come. People say, from the people over here in Samaria, or our water comes from Samaria, some of the different places. This is significant. Uh, Very early on, Jesus shows us here an interest or desire. Now, notice what it says here in the text. Uh, 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 Jesus left there to go to Galilee, verse 3, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, is that a geographical statement by John? He had to? Is it it that he had to do that? No, uh, it's not. Uh, Did he have to go to Samaria because he had a divine appointment? I mean, there's nothing in the text that will tell us that. But we do know that you don't have to go through Samaria. In fact, observant Jews would be pretty careful that when they left Jerusalem, they would go east toward Jericho, get on the other side of the Jordan River, go up the Transjordan Divide up that way. When they got to Galilee, then go left, if you will, or west to get into Galilee. It took three days to go from Jerusalem up into Galilee if you went the straight shot. It took six days if you went the other way. Now, I just suggest to you, you got to hate people an awful lot to make your trip go twice, right? (laughs) You you have to have pretty much disdain for people if you're going to go that way. I mean, when I travel, uh, Becky and I will always, I'm saying I want to go the fastest. I don't care if it's the most direct route, but I want to get there the fastest that I can because I'm a guy. It's a challenge, right? I remember when I was a kid, we would be traveling along, and my dad always wanted to get somewhere fast. And I would say, I need to go to the restroom. He'd say, well, wait for me. And I'd say, well, Dad, there's a gas station up there. I can see it. He said, it's on the wrong side of the highway. <laughs> what? The wrong side? I asked him, I said, what, what does that mean? He said, well, I'm going to have to get off the road and go over a bridge. It's on the left side. We have to wait till we find one on the right side. I actually cured him of that. I won't go into any details here. <laughs> When I was about eight years old, I cured him of that. Anytime I asked to go to the restroom, oh, stop, okay, we'll stop, hold, hold it. Right? My, my dad had this internal clock, like a lot of guys do, that we got to get there fast, and we got to get there now, and we got to beat our last time. Anybody with me there, guys? You know, you got to beat your last time. I'm checking two things on a trip. Gas mileage, how am I doing, and how fast did I get there? Then I'm, then I'm happy, and Becky's not. Anyway, the location. Uh, This is a big deal that Jesus goes through Samaria. This is a place where Jews, if you will, in Judea consider 
these Samaritans disloyal and unobservant Jews. A little bit of history here. About 700 B.C., Shalamazer comes in and overtakes the northern kingdoms there, drags the ten tribes off to Assyria, uh, takes most of them, leaves some of them, repopulates it with Gentiles and Assyrians and all people from that area, and they come back and these Jews intermingle and intermarry and, if you will, lose their Jewishness. They had been disloyal, if you will, uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the actual uh, living out of Judaism. So by this time, it's, it's been going on for hundreds of years, these people are considered half-breed, disloyal, not really Jews, kind of go, going their own way. Then there's a second thing. There's a second thing. In this area, and this is one of the questions the lady asks, there's a temple that's rival to Jerusalem. It's on Mount Gerizim, if you enter G-E-R-I-Z-I-M. There's a temple that was built there as a rival to the temple in Jerusalem. Now, there are lots of reasons of thoughts about that uh, as to why and, and what. But they decide that they don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. Some have suggested they were peoples who had religion of convenience. You know, if it's not convenient, I'm not going. You know, I, I've often said to some of the guys around here, I've always noticed whenever uh, on, on church days that I don't know if you know this or not, but, you know, sometimes people don't come when it rains because church rain is very dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know if you do that. It's not the same as OU football rain. No, no. It has a much higher water content, much slicker, slippier. It's really dangerous. Or uh, church snow. I mean, that's the most dangerous of all. Pat, Pat Fowler, who's... Uh, grounds and like he and I were talking we discovered something else that the, the, the tendency often goes down with people is that it's really dangerous too it's called church wind man wind is blowing hard just can't leave the house it's too dangerous got a high profile vehicle right uh, you know convenience isn't I mean sometimes we're, we're, we're captive to that that if it isn't convenient if it isn't easy uh, we don't want to do it and, and there's some suggestion that maybe the Samaritans having a three day journey to go to the temple and have to drag everything out there. Why not here? Now, it's interesting they chose this place. I want to show you a picture here. I did not take this, although I've been here. No, <laughs> not to this particular place. This is uh, the Valley of Decision, some uh, scholars would call this, that uh, this is Mount Gerizim over here, and this is Mount Ebal, E-B-A-L. Now, this is a very sacred place. This is a very sacred place because this is the location, if you remember in Deuteronomy 27, that Moses told Joshua, when you take the children of Israel into, into the promised land, you stop at Shechem. This is another place where Abraham had been. And you divide the people up. And you put half of them on Mount Gerizim and half of them on Mount Ebal. And you reaffirm the covenant and on Mount Gerizim, half the people, after the reading of the Ten Commandments, will recite the blessings of the covenant. I will bless those who bless you in your going out and your coming in. And they would, and they would pronounce those blessings from uh, the law. And then the second group over here on the Mount Ebal would then recite and chant antiphonally the curses if you don't follow the law. This, I'll drive you out. I will put pest, you know, all the, 
So this is a very sacred place. This is where they, re, before they ever got in the promised land and, and began to take it, they had reaffirmed their commitment to the covenant, both its blessings and curses. It's a pretty important place, isn't it? I mean, it, it, that's pretty significant. And so the Samaritans, these in the upper area, because of, again, perhaps their lack of concern or lack of interest to go all the way to Jerusalem, said, we, we, we've got as holy a place as you've got. We'll build a temple. And they did. And that temple is what she's talking about later. Where do we have to go to worship God? You guys are saying Jerusalem. We're saying we can go here. And Jesus has a whole different program, doesn't he? But here's part of that challenge, the struggle, this whole idea. In fact, in 125 uh, B.C., uh, during the Maccabean Revolt, uh, if you read your Apocrypha, you can read First and Second Maccabees, uh, when the Jews drove the Gentiles out of this area, and Tychus Epiphanes and the rest of these yard birds, uh, well, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> that, that <laughs> drove them out. One of the things that John Hycaris, or Hycaris, how you pronounce it, did was, as, as the leader of the southern kingdom, as, as the leader who was begin to set up the Maccabean uh, rule, the first thing they did when they got up there, they destroyed the temple. This didn't make for good relationships. <laughs> they destroyed it, tore it to bits, and decided we'll put this rival, if you will, uh, uh, out of business. It's interesting to me <clears throat> that, that Jesus is talking to a woman who not only is considered to be not pure, not loyal, not a real Jew. In addition to that, she's a woman. That's, that's another thing we'll look at in a moment. But also, they're a rival religion. You know, they're, they're, they're a rival, if you will, practice of Judaism. Finally, it's interesting to me the way this gets all set up in here. Uh, most scholars will say that John 3 and 4 ought to be read together. They ought to be read together. Because you have the polar opposites. Uh, in, in John chapter 3, you have a man who is a Jew who is religious. I can't even spell when I get close to the board. When you get to chapter 4, you have the polar opposite. You have a woman who's a Samaritan who is irreligious in most eyes. <clears throat> I mean, it's a huge contrast here that Jesus brings to us. And so I want to look some more at that. Now, the second thing here, the shock of God's love. The shock. The shock. You know what? When I first married Becky, uh, we, uh, I went out to Kansas with her. And uh, one of the things that I noticed uh, was they had these little bitty fences about this high. And one wire all around it. And I asked, what, what are those for? And they said, well, that's, you know, how we keep our cattle in. And I said, man, you must have humble cattle around here. <laughs> in Texas, they just step right over that thing. And Arlen said to me, well, they might not. And I said, now, why is that? He said, just grab it. <laughs> <laughs> I told you they didn't like me. <clears throat> wow. There's a little electricity going through that thing. You know, it's a little bitty wire and doesn't look like much. And, and it's just kind of around and you think it's not high enough to stop a cow. Brother, it would stop me. <laughs> you know, it was a shock. 
Listen, this setting being the way that it is, for Jesus to engage this woman in a conversation is shocking. In fact, look at this. Whenever they begin to discuss these things, when he sits down and, and begins to talk to her, she makes this statement. Why is it you're asking a drink from me, you being a Jew, and me being a Samaritan woman? This is shocking. Now, I, I want to bring out several areas of shock, if you will, if you'll work with me here just for a moment. One of the shocks, again, is that Jesus actually went through Samaria. That is shocking. No rabbi would do this. No rabbi would find themselves in Samaria. They considered him to be such a, a, a irreligious and pagan, if you will. There is no understanding here of that. It, it's, just, it's just shocking to, to them. I mean, I was trying to think of some, some equivalent. And the only, you know, one of the things I, I thought of in our culture, in our world, and some of us old enough to remember this, most of us, is, is how shocking it was to our culture and our world. Becky isn't old as I am, uh, but when we watch PBS or, you know, stuff like that, sometimes try to get smart, um, when she sees the films and the material on the civil rights struggle, when she sees policemen beating black people just because they're standing there saying, I'm a man, you know, in that great garbage uh, uh, resistance thing. Dr. Martin Luther King went to, to Memphis. I'm a man. I'm, I'm a person. And seeing those big hoses spray on people and knocking them down and grandmas and little kids. It's shocking. Becky would say to me, she, again, she's too young. You know, I'm, I, I got somebody young that they didn't understand what they were doing. And uh, <clears throat> marry me. I'm okay with that. Uh, and, 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 and some historians will tell you that the thing that began to move the dial on the, on the civil rights thing, where, where people of goodwill said, wait a minute. They saw that. They saw young kids and children and grandmas being beaten and, and being hosed down. And we saw that on television. We said, that can't be happening in America. And the dial began to turn. It was shocking. It was shocking when Rosa Parks said, I'm not moving. Think about that little lady on that bus. Can you imagine? Get up, move. I'm not moving. Shocking to people to, to, to see someone say, listen, this is that and more. I mean, this is that and more. I grew up in the deep south. I remember these days. I remember as a kid growing up and seeing some of this stuff and thinking, this is not the way life's supposed to be. To my dad's credit, I will tell you this real quick. My, my dad was such a great guy. I remember uh, he, we pastored a church in southeast Texas which was uh, in just right in the heart of racism. Unbelievable. There were, there were uh, years before that, <clears throat> there's a bridge in uh, a Natchez River Bridge where a bunch of African-Americans decided they were going to come to town, a little town called Vider. Uh, and they were going to come to town. <clears throat> now, this happened in the 40s, and people stood there with shotguns and killed them. Killed them. I mean, it, this was deep. And my dad started the bus ministry in our church. We, that's when you use buses and go pick kids up and, bring them to Sunday school because they wouldn't come any other way. Their parents wouldn't bring them. So we started picking up little white kids and black kids and Hispanic kids and Chinese kids, whatever. And I remember uh, my dad, this was about 1967, and uh, my dad had a couple of the saints <laughs> come to them and said, you know, a uh, brother Sanders, 
we don't like having those kind of people in our church. And my dad said, I guess you're going to have to find another church then, aren't you? Looked them right in the eye and said, you're going to have to find another church. And he meant it. It was shocking to us. My dad grew up poor. He said they moved every time the rent came due. You know? He remembers when he went in the Army, or the the Navy, sorry. He he was in the Navy. That when his squad leader called him out and said, Sanders, I want you to take this squad, my dad said, no, wait a minute. I'm a Sanders. I can't be a leader. I'm a Sanders. They were on the lowest rung of the ladder. This is some of what's going on with Jesus. These people have been so disregarded and so dismissed, I don't think people even see them as people anymore. You know, that happens to us. We don't see people as people anymore. We see them with a sign, we'll work for food. We, ah, he won't do that. Maybe they will. We don't see people as people anymore. I'm going to get ahead of myself, but I've already had some time taken away from me that I will call for next week. <laughs> no, Beth, thank you. I'm just being honored. Thank you. <clears throat> thank you. You know, <clears throat> i just tell you this. It's kind of interesting to me. That Jesus doesn't say the same thing to this woman that he said to Nicodemus. He talked to Nicodemus about being born again. He talked to her about water. Isn't it interesting? I wrote my notes that I just said this. I said, Jesus didn't treat people like problems. He treated them like people. Think about that for a second. When we deal with people, sometimes we deal with people who aren't followers of Jesus. We want to deal with their problem. You're doing this. You're living this way. You're sinning. Quit treating people like a problem and start treating them like people. Start treating people like this is what Jesus... He didn't have a canned approach. You can't find in the Gospels one approach. There isn't one Gospel message. The Gospel message is that God loves you, but it's crafted and put in place in a way that meets where the person is. That's why I think we don't have much effectiveness with people. We've got a canned approach. We just got something we've learned to spit out. We've memorized. There's nothing wrong with that. But that's not how Jesus worked. He talked to her about water. You know, you thought, well, you know what? She needs to be born again. So we need to talk to her about the same thing I talked to Nicodemus about. Just not true. Another thing here is shocking to me about God's love. You'll notice here that it says that Jesus in verse 6 was wearied. And he sat down. I think we've been Christians too long when you hear this. It's shocking to me that the love of God is in that God became a human being. That's shocking. God became a human being. He took upon Himself all of flesh and Life and experienced tiredness, disappointment, persecution, betrayal, hunger, sorrow. Think, now think about that for a second. Don't, don't let this just kind of, yeah, he's God, he's man. Stop for a second. You know, it took the church about 300 years to get this ironed out. Did you know that? Fully God, fully man. 
I mean, I mean, this was not something simple. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh, who's willing to submit himself to thirst, to hunger, to misunderstanding, to live the life that we live, to go, as one writer says, to the dregs to experience death. Now, I want, you to, I, want you to, I want you to see this first, okay, will you? Turn with me, if you will, uh, uh, chapter 5 of Hebrews. This is one of the... I wouldn't believe this if it wasn't in the Bible. I wouldn't believe this. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews commenting on this life of Jesus in the flesh... Uh, Chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, when he was living here with us, he offered up, I'm in verse 7, chapter uh, Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cryings and tears. Jesus apparently didn't go through life. Oh, yeah, I knew that was going to (laughs) happen. Yeah, I'm God. I knew that was going to happen. He went through his life with loud crying. And tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Eusebia, there is the idea of looking to God. Verse 8 Although he was a son, he learned what the Son of God. (laughs) He was a son. He learned obedience through the things which he suffered. Now, listen to this. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal life. Now that word Greek there is the Greek word perfect. It means perfect, complete. Listen now, I know this sounds crazy. Fully developed. Listen, this is shocking that Jesus understood something about being human that he could not or did not know as God. And if you want to argue about that in the abstract, I'll argue with you about it. There's a difference between knowing something in the abstract and knowing something in experience. If you think you know what a cat will operate, pick him up by the tail and see what you learn. (laughs) He was made what? Perfect. This is the scandal of the gospel. That Jesus was a real human being. We don't talk about that much. He was God, and in not some hybrid. God's over here, and man's over there. In some kind of way, the Greek fathers, the early Greek fathers talked about homoousis, of one substance. People say, well, you know, Jesus had an advantage over us. He was God. He was also fully human. I mean, I'm telling you, we've been Christians too long. This, this doesn't shock us anymore that this God that we serve, this God that we say we love, entered into everything that we have. Man, listen, this is the, the glory of the Christian gospel. This God knows everything now. Think about that. He was made perfect through the things that He suffered. 
And I'm going to suggest to you that there was something that Jesus did not know. There was something that Jesus had not experienced until he became human. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? It says here he was made complete, perfect, fully developed. You and I have a God who isn't just the big guy on the hill, who isn't just holy and righteous and wonderful. He also understands you from experience. He understands you from experience. That's why I've told you before, I've said this a long time ago, but I've prayed at times when I'm in a struggle, when I'm in the depths of something, and I just say this, Jesus, remember. Jesus, remember. Remember what it was like to be betrayed. Remember what it was like to feel alone. Remember what it was like when you were deserted. Remember what it was like when you felt no one understood you. Remember what it was like when you felt God had left you. Think about that. It's shocking. We we put people in mental institutions if they walked up and said, I'm God. You know, there's a guy down in Texas that says he's Jesus. He's not. Don't worry about it. We put people in mental institutions that come in and say, I'm God. Yeah, we got a pill for that. Wouldn't we? We've been Christians too long. Here he is, tired, thirsty. Man, it's shocking that he talks to this immoral woman, this incredibly immoral woman. I think I'm on, yeah. Rabbis taught that Samaritan women were unclean from the cradle. And this woman in verse 9 is shocked that she, that he is willing to take a drink and ask her. Now I want to show you something I think Jesus is doing here. I think this is the next thing on your line. I, you know, I make these things up and I have all kinds of other ideas. Here's what it is. Jesus is going to connect with her before he corrects her. Think about that. Jesus connects before he corrects. That's not the way we go at it. We think we know everything. We think we know why people do what they do. But Jesus asks her for a drink of water, which again is just off the hook. It's just something that is not understood in this culture. That he would, because it says right here that Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jesus connects with her before he tries to correct her. You know, here's our problem. In mine, I, you know, I've had some famous examples of this. That I think I know what people are doing and why they're doing it instead of connecting with them. I'm too busy looking at their behavior. So I don't treat them as people, I treat them as a what? problem. I don't treat people as people. I treat them as a problem. Get this thing fixed. Jesus is talking to her saying, could you help me? Would you give me a drink of water? Would you be willing? And she's blown away by thinking, what's going on here? I'm not going to have enough time today to finish. (laughs) Surprise, huh? But I want you to think about this. That the love of God is shocking. You know, C.S. Lewis said it this way. We've tamed God's love. It's ferocious. It's relentless. It is non-ending. 
this idea of this God who loves the world, not only in this setting, it's shocking what He does. How He responds to people that others have simply written off. And they're like, these are these lepers like in our culture. We've written whole categories of people off. We've said these people do this, and so we're going to write them off. Instead of connecting with them before we can ever correct. We want to tell people on Facebook that these people are doing this and they're doing that. And we want to get politicians to fix everything. But we don't want to get to know anybody's story. We don't want to listen to them and say, why are you this way? I read a sermon by D.L. Moody some years ago that said that, I'm sorry, Charles Spurgeon, it said that he was referring to people that were living sinfully, prostitutes and drunkards and like that. And, 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 and Spurgeon made this observation. He said, you don't know what they've been through. You don't know what they've been through. Had you been through the same thing, you'd probably be worse. Now I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want to leave you with a couple of thoughts real quick. See, it's easy to dismiss people that we think we're morally superior to. It's real easy to dismiss them because we're morally superior. My good friend Dan Ranicki has a statement. I, I told him I was going to use it. And Dan says it like this, and I think this captures it, that we've got to learn to connect with people before we correct them. We've got to find out their story. It's this. Most of us were born on third base and think we hit a home run. Right? You were born on third base. You had a family that cared for you and loved you. You had parents that watched over you. You lived in a country where the, you know, the standard of living is sky high. We, 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 don't, we, we dismiss people because it's easy to dismiss people that we're morally superior to. But if we think about it, we'd say, you know what, I was born on third base. I'm getting old now, you know. This is really wearing me out. 50 bothered me. This one is going to... I've got a room at Mercy. Uh, <clears throat> man, I'm telling you, I didn't think I'd live this long. My dad told me I wouldn't, but uh, he had other plans, though. It was another, another drill. But, but this notion of, of connecting with people, this, this, this notion of, of connecting before we correct them to say, what's your story? You don't have the same story that I have. When I listen to people's story, I think, my goodness, how could they have been as sane and as reasonable as they are? How can, how can we dismiss people that have grown up in homes that have been so racked with violence and drugs and alcohol and things, and then people come out and say, well, why aren't you acting right? Well, look, look at it for a minute, would you? Connect with people. Connect with them before you correct them. Listen to their story. Listen to where they've been. It might make more sense. I've told you about students before that were doing stupid things and I just thought, you know what? This is my room and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you I'm in the 24th grade. It's never been good. <laughs> when I'd stop and listen and say, what's your story? What, what's your life like? Connect before you correct. This is a practical example of God's love. This whole path, I'm not through, I promise you. We'll have to finish it up later. But John is showing that Jesus' statement in John 3 is not an abstract idea. He goes to the bottom of the social ladder and shocks people with what he does. Now here's what I ask you to do this week. 
Just an idea. What if this week we did something that made our love for God or our neighbor a reality that was a bit shocking or unexpected? I'm going to give you some idea. Hey, you know what? One of the things that people don't usually understand is generosity because there's always a hook. You, you know, have somebody say, I want to take you to lunch. You get through the salad and now the spill starts, right? It's what I need. It's what i like for you to do. People don't really get generosity that has no hook in it. What if, what if you paid for lunch this week? Check it with your wife first. <laughs> or mow your neighbor's yard. I laughed when I wrote that. <laughs> Give money to help supply water to people. Turn off the TV for 30 minutes and read the Bible and pray about being more conformed. Do something this week that's shocking. It's a little out of the ordinary. I want to live in this love of God that has a bit of a shock value to it. Maybe again, the shocking part would be there's somebody you know that others have dismissed that you quit thinking that they're just a problem and you just connect with them this week. Tell me your story. What's been your story? How are you you where you are where you are? Connect with them before you correct them. Let's pray. Jesus, this story has so many layers and so many uh, truths in it. But we know that one of the two things that we have to know is that you, you reach out to people that everybody else has dismissed. And your love knows no bounds. And in doing that, it shocks us a bit. Would you give us a little shock this week? A little opportunity to, to show someone love that maybe we've not before or compassion or concern and that our lives would demonstrate and model what we see in you, Jesus. What a Savior we have. The words, oh, what a Savior. Oh, hallelujah. He gave his life to set me free. We thank you and praise you, Jesus, for who you are. Guide us in our lives, we pray in your strong name. Amen.